Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Well, what can I say? It's the greatest time of the year. And let's celebrate by listening to some great, scary stories. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Stories from a Monster Hunter Written by Flying Thunder God 0408 A cold breeze blew through my bedroom window. I sat up in my bed still half asleep. The tree out front had completely shed its leaves, the onset of winter. Seeing the cold creeping in put a smile on my face. Business was about to boom. I dragged myself downstairs to get on with my day, stopping by the kitchen on my way. A carton of milk and three boiled eggs. I loaded the peeled eggs onto my plate and went to town. After getting my meal over with, I went down to the basement where I stored my weapons. I had to run a status check, and if necessary, stock up on more supplies. You see, winter is usually when a lot of monster species go to bed for a few months in North America. Most reptilian and mammalian menaces are either inactive or burrowed in caves. Through the months of October to January, most commonly known as the American Bigfoot, they dwindle in numbers before resurging in spring. Studies have shown that these swamp-dwelling amphibious frog gators burrow in mud through most of the dry season. And while winter certainly reduces the diversity of catch-for-us hunters, it is by no means a slow period. Winter is when the big bad of North America comes out to play. Winter is the Wendigo season. This time of the year is busiest for us hunters all thanks to this ancient, ice-cold apex predator of these snowing lands. The moment the October heat passes by, I get flooded with calls and job offers, and this year I got quite the call indeed. On the wall furthest from the stairs were seven gun lockers. I took out a Remington from the second, seemed alright. There were about two boxes of rounds on the shelf. In the first locker sat my crossbow. I had to get the string replaced. The other rifles were in good condition for the most part. I opened up the sixth locker. There it was, sitting on the top shelf. My shotgun. The shotgun. My family's magnum opus. I still had 20 rounds of the Hi-X tungsten slugs. Good enough for this season, I guess, considering it only takes one to finish the job. I remembered my injuries from the first time that I used this thing earlier this year. I shuddered at the thought. I wanted to avoid using this thing for this year at least. I headed to my truck. 
I was going to have to go down to Barron's, a local dealer who also supplies special equipment to hunters in my area. I was instructed to meet up with the old man to collect especially sanctioned supplies for my up-and-coming job. As I was heading towards the stairs, I stopped by the last locker. I opened it up. Inside was a black leather trench coat. A deer skull was printed on its back in white. The sight of it brought back a lot of memories from the time when I was training at the academy. I took the coat upstairs and threw it beside my suitcase. I was going to need it anyway. I put the keys in and gave it a twist. She started right up, purring gently at idle. I drove down the freeway, pondering over that phone call. The first one to go related call for this season and it's something quite unique. I am tasked to capture one alive, yes alive. I didn't believe it at first. It's not that live capture hasn't been done before. Successful capture and containment has been performed three times in the past. Two were bagged straight from the wilderness while one was quite literally made and raised in captivity. A private-funded study permitted subjecting a living, breathing human to the Wendigo curse. In order to transform the said subject and observe the stages of transformation, it's pretty messed up. Definitely some sort of violation. But it is a far cry from the worst of the atrocities committed in the name of science. Wendigos are without question one of the top three worst monsters in North America, if not the worst. They aren't natural beings, all of them were once humans who were influenced by the Wendigo curse. A curse is a spiritual influence from a metaphysical entity. In this case, the curse of the Wendigo was embodied within a spiritual entity that finds its roots in the heart of the native lands. Dr. Houses was the first to document the manifestation of the curse in a living specimen in 1962. This curse begins to take effect from psychological triggers, particularly when the victims are put in extreme conditions of starvation or greed. Should the subject indulge in exploitation against their own ethical conscience under these conditions of extreme stress, most usually acts of cannibalism and murder, they undergo several morphological and psychological changes. Induced psychosis causes paranoia and insatiable hunger to set in. Bodily changes begin after a week of the trigger. Complete body hair loss followed by the subsequent replacement by extremely thin sensory hairs. Loss of body fat and emaciation of the body. Increased bone density by 400%. Reactivation of growth plates causing the elongation of limbs. Strengthening of fast twitch muscle fibers all around the body. Posture changes and elongation of metatarsals, replacing the human plantigrade foot with a digigrade foot. The skin darkens to resemble ash gray and black. Nails turn into black claws and the teeth are replaced with sharp canine daggers. Eyes the ash white of death with dark black sclera. The ears elongate. The jaws protrude for a larger bite. The cheeks tear, revealing the rows of teeth and the cartilage-based nose. It disappears as the nasal bone elongates and raises up. The result is a humanoid creature that prowls the taiga and boreal forests of the north relentlessly, 
searching for flesh to consume. They don't bother killing, they'll eat you alive. They'll lure you, track you down, and tear you apart. And you'll be there to witness all of it firsthand. I drove down the desolate road towards my dealer's property. After a 25 minute drive, I pulled up at his store. The usual old man was seated at the register, lighted cigarette in hand. Myers, he said, acknowledging my presence. I walked towards the register. How you doing, old man? I asked. He took a long puff of his cigarette. And they've got quite the goods for you, Myers. Yeah, winter's here. I would like a nice and comfy coat. I replied with a smile. Baron rose from his seat. Oh, you're gonna love this, he said in his rugged voice. He led me to the back of the store through a big metal door. Mr. Barron is a trusted arms and equipment dealer. He, along with many others across the world, helps supply us hunters with the tools for the job. Trust me when I say that times were a lot rougher in this trade before technological advancements found their way into the uncanny hunting business. Nowadays, you commonly see stuff like RS imaging, sonar, radar, mana sensors, and proximity alarms being used in the field. You find all sorts of wacky tech at the dealer shops. Baron led me to the warehouse out back. I walked down an aisle with racks 10 feet high on either side. They were stocked with all sorts of goods wrapped up in plastic packaging. I noticed a drone towards the end of the aisle. I pushed aside the packaging and took out the instruction sheet. As I was fiddling with the paper, Baron waddled up to me, dragging a wooden crate. I stood in front of it as he opened it up. Inside the crate were three metallic devices. They were in the shape of hexagonal prisms, 25 centimeters wide. The vertices were smooth and not pointy. The top had a handle which was attached to a circular mechanism underneath. The device was around 20 centimeters in height and was bisected in the middle. Connecting rods extended perpendicularly from these six vertices, connecting the top and bottom. What is this? I asked. Uh, it may sound stupid, but the R&D decided to call it an anti-voicer. Anti-voicer? I asked. It apparently counteracts the voices of the forest. I picked up the device by its handle. It was about 12 kilos. The trickiest thing about hunting wendigos is dealing with their most terrifying ability. The voices of the forest. Sounds like a generic name, but it's truly horrifying. You all probably know that wendigos can mimic voices. That is true, but it's only a fraction of what they're truly capable of. Wendigos can generate low-frequency sounds that cause hallucinations. They might cause you to hear the voice of a loved one. Maybe your backyard suddenly has one more bush than usual. Maybe you're trying to track your way back home from a hike on the trail, but the forest and landscape seem unrecognizable. If a wendigo gets too close to you, it can directly gaze deep into your soul and make the hallucinations even more severe. You see where this is going. The Wendigo will use any trick it desires to lure you closer to its jaws. The hallucinations are very simple. Obviously due to the fact that an insane ravenous beast can only have so much imagination and creativity in manifesting auditory and visual stimuli. 
It employs basic elements of the cold forest and alters your perspective of your environment, both auditory and visual. When you're out in the wild, there's no chance of noticing that you're being baited. I held the device in my hand. After reading the instructions, I twisted the handle anti-clockwise. This released the latch on the bottom. I grabbed the bottom and pulled it from the top. The rods extended a foot before locking. Between the vertices at the center was a glass cylinder with a small black pyramid amplifier. Two black wires extended from the top and bottom towards the center. I set it down on the ground. I could feel the very faint tingle in my body. It uses signal interference to cancel out the wave frequencies emitted by those idiots. This is just a phase one prototype though. Its range of protection is up to 150 meters tops. Effects drop off with distance. I put the device back into the crate. So, this mission was also a field test for the prototypes, I thought to myself. As I grabbed the crate, Baron beckoned me over. One last thing, Myers. Your little trip is being sponsored. By who? I asked. Thirty hours later, I was on a helicopter ride through the Yukon Territory. Sitting beside me were Anawan and Emily. These two were one of the best hunters of Canada. Just last year alone, they've successfully managed to take down over 80 Wendigos. Being seated beside two masters of the art, I felt a bit nervous about my performance. Emily tossed me a rifle. I examined it and on the right side of the barrel in matte black finishing was the word Dragonfire. This was a whole new line of rifles to be tested in this mission. The manufacturers, who will remain anonymous, partnered up for this mission so that they could get field data for their newly developed weapons. Apparently the rounds have a capsule of napalm around the tips. They burn red hot when fired. The technician who gave us the demo told us that the bullets literally melt through their targets. And as you know, there's only two ways to kill a Wendigo. Burn it to death or destroy its heart. The helicopter hovered over the treetops as the three of us rappelled down to the ground. Supply crates were dropped. The three of us took inventory of our supplies. We were ready. I looked around us. The green conifers were topped with the white of snow. Patches of rocky terrain were scattered around the snowy carpet of the forest floor. The pristine mountain ranges far to the west captivated me. The Canadian wilderness is truly a sight to behold. The cold breeze swept over my heavy coat. I grabbed two of the four crates. For now, Anawan was taking the lead. He was an expert at tracking. My job was more killing-oriented. Sensors in Sector 76 picked up movement two hours ago. Camera footage revealed it to be a large male grizzly bear. Grizzly? I asked. Yeah, but there's a catch. Anawan turned to me. Its left forelimb was torn clean off. You could see the broken head of the humerus jutting out of the wound. Not to mention the four deep gashes across its torso. Right on the money, Emily said. You said the bear was moving northeast in the footage, right? Yeah, that's correct. 
which means our friend should be at the border of Sector 77 right about now. We should check the caverns on the northern hills of 77, Emily suggested. There's a good possibility that we might find some leads there. It's the only cave system in a 15-kilometer radius. If this Wendigo has been settling here for a few days, it's probably sought shelter there. And we traveled east for four hours. Our goal was to get to a specific clearing that Emily and Anawa knew about. We would have a clear view of the cave entrances if we set up there. We were about a kilometer away from the clearing when Emily raised her hand, signaling for us to stop. I instinctively lifted my rifle, ready to shoot at any possible threats. Anawan pointed to the ground. Tracks. 45 centimeters in length, 30 in width. Four toed, digigrade. This indicates that the Wendigo had been fully transformed. The footprint was massive. This specimen was definitely one of the larger ones. The tracks seemed to lead off into the trees. We decided not to follow them for now. We headed towards the massive clearing. It was less than a kilometer wide. Towards the south, the trail led to a small lake. Up north were rocky hills and I took out my binoculars. Up in the hills were three small caves. I could see them just above the treetops. This was a good spot. One of the best ways to kill a wendigo was to enter its territory and then wait for it to come to you. And trust me, it'll come to you. It always does. It seeks only to hunt and consume. Its appetite will lead it to us. We set up one large tent and unloaded our supplies. I stood guard at the front of the tent. The clearing was completely empty like a blanket of snow. Gentle winds blew through our campsite. It felt calm, a bit too calm. That wasn't a good sign. One of the noticeable symptoms of the influence of the voices of the forest was a feeling of tranquility. A stressed out victim is less likely to play into a wendigo's trap. For ages, hunters across the north would bite their tongues or pinch themselves every few seconds to keep themselves in the moment. The technique usually works with the average wendigo. However, some specimens are too adept at using the voices. This is what makes them so dangerous. Not a lot of hunters would subject themselves to the position the three of us were in right now. But here we were, and here we would have to make a stand. I quickly went back inside the tent. It's too calm, I said. The two of them immediately understood. Each of us grabbed an anti-voicer. The plan was to create a safe perimeter by planting the devices in a triangular formation. Anawan and Emily began walking to either side of our campsite. I walked straight ahead. Since the range of the devices was 150 meters, that meant that I would have to walk at least 280 meters north to ensure the optimum overlap. I walked towards the tree line in front of our camp. I heard the hoot of an owl. I froze dead in my tracks and I looked around. There didn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary. I had to walk around 200 meters more to get to the planting spot right next to an old, a singular withered tree in the middle of the clearing. I slowly made my way towards the tree ahead. All the while, the hoots of the owls persisted. As I got closer to the spot, I noticed that the owls seemed to be on all sides of the clearing, 
just beyond the tree line. I was getting closer to the tree. 150 meters, 100 meters. I heard comms from Anawan and Emily. AV1 planted, AV2 planted. Emily's voice came through my earpiece. Waiting on you, Maya. The comms were cut out by static. I was getting interference. It could be because of the devices, I didn't know for sure. I would have to relay this information to the technicians after getting back. 50 meters from the tree. 25. The owls cheered me on and I kept looking around, trying to pinpoint the direction of them. 10 meters away from the tree. I stopped. I held the anti-voicer in my hands. Twisting the handle anti-clockwise, I heard the latch release. I pulled the top and bottom away from each other, revealing the amplifier mechanism. I could hear a low hum as the device powered up. A blue LED light began blinking on the top console. As I put the device on the ground, listening to these startup beeps, I remembered something. The first time we had entered the clearing, I clearly remembered thinking to myself, the clearing is completely empty, like a blanket of snow. The device was up and running, but I didn't dare move a muscle. Myers. Anawan's voice spoke to me through the earpiece. Don't move. I slowly lifted my head in the direction of the withered tree. Staring back at me were the ash-white eyes of death. The creature was massive, it was definitely ten feet tall. The wendigo tilted its head. I could smell the pungent odor of rotten flesh. It and I both knew that I wasn't falling for its BS anymore. The wendigo slowly opened its jaws. Its lips and cheeks were torn to reveal the full extent of its teeth. It let out a low growl. I turned tail and ran. I sprinted straight back to the campsite. I heard an ear-piercing screech from behind me, followed by rampant, maniacal thuds. It was giving chase. I needed to get close to the campsite so my colleagues could intercept the Wendigo. I heard the Wendigo gaining on me. I couldn't give up. I kept running with all my might. I heard somebody shout my name and that was my cue. With one last stride, I dove to my right, trying to get out of the Wendigo's path. I heard loud gunshots just ahead. They were shooting at it. I got back to my feet. The Wendigo was only a few meters away, but now it focused its detention on the other two. I ran back to the campsite and I could hear the firefight outside. They were trying to hold the ground. I quickly ran to the fourth crate and opened it. Bingo. I ran back outside and I joined the fight. Both Emily and Anawan were firing rounds into the beast. The wounds on the Wendigo were glowing red. It had burns on its torso and limbs. Despite its injuries, the Wendigo didn't show any signs of retreat. The bullets were just pissing it off even more. It charged at Anawan, who was caught reloading. I aimed at the beast and shot at its domed head. It didn't penetrate the skull, however. I stared at the monster once again and it slowly turned to face me. Letting out a roar, it leaped at me with incredible speed. I dropped my rifle and unharnessed the five-foot-long dragonfire railgun on my back. I flipped the switch and took aim. A loud whine came out from the weapon. 
The barrel glowed a bright orange. The Wendigo lifted its arm to take a swing at me. I aimed at its shoulder and pulled the trigger. A loud blast rippled through the clearing. The bullet tore through the joint of the shoulder. The Wendigo's arm fell to the ground. It was blown clean off. Perfect. This was the only way that we would have to capture this thing. Blow off all its limbs and then airlift it to containment before it regenerates. Call for evac, Emily said. We'll be finished by the time they get here. We have to get this thing into a cell before it gets its claws back. The Wendigo stumbled back. It looked furious and declared at me. It was going to charge again. The railgun needed a full minute to recharge. I couldn't immediately reuse it. I grabbed the rifle on the ground. Anawan unsheathed the sword. I looked at him as he pressed a button on the handle of the black blade. He dragged his finger along the blade. The edge began glowing red hot. Is that dragonfire too? I asked him. No, he said. Just a hand-me-down from my brother. I took aim at the creature. It charged. I tried to shoot its eyes out, but it was moving too fast. It jumped at me. I tried to jump out of the way, but it swiped at me. I fell to the ground hard. The creature lost its balance and fell beside me. I rolled away as the creature was getting back on its feet. It roared in malice. The thing's jaws were eight feet away when I saw Anamon running at full speed with a red-hot sword. With a single decisive swing, he sliced through the Wendigo's left leg. A clean cut. The beast fell once again. Get the net, Anawan called. Emily loaded the steel cable net into its launcher. Anawan and I both took a few steps back as she fired the net at the creature. The cable wound around the creature. It howled in rage, frantically looking around for its next prey. Unfortunately, all it saw were three hunters. Emily shot out its left eye. I ran towards the railgun and should have been done charging by now. The sound of metal screeching made me look back. The Wendigo had managed to push its left arm through the net. Dark blood was trickling down onto the snow below. With one arm free, the Wendigo lashed at Anawan. He fell hard onto his back. The Wendigo wriggled towards him, swiping at him with its elongated arms. I grabbed the railgun and tried to flick the switch. Nothing happened. Dang it, it's not done charging, I thought to myself. Suddenly, I heard a scream from behind me. I looked back to see the Wendigo's claw hooked onto Anawan's leg. It pierced his skin, leaving a deep gash. The snow was colored with the Wendigo's and Anawan's blood. It started dragging him closer. I kept fiddling with the switch, hoping that it'll charge up at any second. I didn't want any human casualties. Amidst the blood-curdling screams of Anawan, I heard a gunshot. The Wendigo roared once again. Emily had shot at the eye socket of the Wendigo. It reeled back, releasing its grip. With his only working leg, Anawan rolled ahead and raised his arms above his head. He mustered up all of his remaining strength and screamed at the top of his lungs. The blade of his sword cut through the arm of the Wendigo. I flipped the switch again, and the railgun began humming. 
Emily and Anawan started moving away from the Wendigo as I aimed for its neck. I pulled the trigger. The mighty spear of God pierced the devil's neck. The forest was illuminated by the railgun's magnificent flare. The Wendigo's head fell to the ground with a loud thud. It was blown clean off. The entire cervical spine was destroyed. Its body twitched, trying to free itself from the net. There was a gaping cavity where the neck should have been. The head lay motionless in the ground, jaws shut tight. The Wendigo had fallen. I sat down, letting out a sigh of relief. It was over. We had finished the mission. Without its head, the Wendigo can't function. It'll be a few hours before it regenerates its limbs again, after which it'll look for its head and reattach it to the main body. I walked up to Anawan, who was lying on the ground. His wound was still bleeding. I helped Emily administer first aid. We wrapped up his leg in an attempt to stop the bleeding for now. Off in the distance, I could hear a helicopter approaching. I went inside the tent to retrieve a flare. The extraction team was here. Anawan should be able to make it in time. The body was put into a reinforced cage. The threat was neutralized for now. It will have reached containment long before it could pose a threat. I strode down the corridor of the facility. Anawan got emergency treatment just in time. They managed to save his leg. The Wendigo was put into a cell in time. From what I was told, it managed to butt its elbow joints just before being locked up. I stopped by the glass. Inside was a square room 25 meters wide and long. The walls were all white. Upon the white tiles of the floor was an elk carcass. Sitting right on top of it was our cannibal friend. It had completely healed all of its wounds. I watched as it tore through the poor elk with its brand new claws. As it was munching on its spleen, it slowly turned towards the glass. I met its gaze once again. I could feel the malice. It wanted to tear me to shreds. It hated me, and I knew it. I held its gaze for a while longer. A shiver ran down my spine. I felt my vision warp as a cold breeze blew around me. I didn't dare move. I felt a hand on my shoulders. I snapped out of my trance as a young man spoke to me. Sir, you've been staring for three minutes. Are you alright? I looked at the guy. He had a security uniform on. Yeah, I'm alright. I'll just head home. It's been a long day. I told him as I began walking towards the exit. I was flown back home after receiving my paycheck. I went to the fridge and I pulled out a beer. I think I'm going to take a break for a week or two. What I saw in that room, no, what the Wendigo showed me is a sight that I'll never forget. A cold breeze blowing over a desolate and snowy landscape. Through the blizzard, a family of five piled up on the ground. The two toddler twins dyed the snow red. The older adult sister twisted and mangled beyond recognition, all of her fingers bitten off. The father's entrails spilled out from deep gashes on his torso. Amidst the pile of corpses, a pale young starving girl, holding the decapitated head of her own mother completely covered in blood. 
The young girl slowly lifted her head, away from the mother's half-eaten cranium, staring directly into my eyes. The left eye was light brown, the right, the ash-white of death. A crescent moon lay fixated in the night sky, as these stars slowly frolicked past it. Even in absolute silence, they seemed to dance to a symphony unknown to mankind. Hey dad, my four-year-old self asked. The rest of the stars changed their places after some time, but that star over there hasn't moved at all. I glanced to my right. My old man just stared up at the night sky. Oh, that one. It's called the Pole Star. You know, it always points towards the north. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you're lost at night and need to figure out directions, look up to the stars. I continued to stargaze for a while. It was one of the few occasions that we bonded over well into my adolescence. However, the tranquility of the moment was interrupted by a single beep. My dad bolted upright, glancing at his phone. He had a serious look on his face. Naturally, as any toddler would, I was frightened. Dad? I asked. Is something wrong? My father turned towards me and smiled. I was expecting words of reassurance. He spoke in a soft and gentle voice. Something broke through the perimeter fence and triggered the motion sensors. His smile persisted. Perhaps you should get inside and lock the doors. Take Brownie with you. That night, I felt uneasy. We often had coyotes trespassing before, and Dad pretty much handled it by himself every single night. This time, however, it somewhat felt different. I saw a face in my dad that I had never seen before. While my dad rushed off to confront our intruder, I scrammed inside to secure the house. Even from a distance, I could hear the hysterical wails of the pigs from the barn. I was a bit worried about the livestock, so I grabbed a pair of binoculars that I had, and I aimed it at the barn. It was a fairly spacious structure, with a patch of trees surrounding it from two sides. From my window, I could see the right side of the barn and the patch of trees which surrounded it from the back and left sides. The lights were off, yet the darkness radiated in an unsettling vibe. I scanned the area to no avail. Brownie, my German shepherd, paced frantically behind me. His nails clicked on the wooden floor, which reminded me to let Dad know of an impending nail clipping session. As these seconds passed, I grew increasingly annoyed by the constant clattering. I started to turn around in hopes of calming him down. However, Brownie bolted towards the window and started growling. He had an aggressive yet nervous look on his face. I knew Brownie was too big of a wimp to confront whatever was out there. So I once again armed myself with the binoculars and I scanned the barn for anything. There was nothing around the barn, but as I moved my gaze towards the patch of trees behind it, I noticed something moving within the trees. As it circled around the barn from the left, I got a good look at the creature. It was like a dog, a big one at that. Imagine a pit bull on steroids, or something along the lines of that. It was huge and bulky. It stood almost four feet at the shoulder. It had a broad snout with a fairly bulky muzzle. 
Initially, I was almost convinced that it was a boxer, at least based on its face, but something about it seemed completely off. Even as I stared at the beast with my own eyes, it felt as if it had no presence of its own. It felt like a mere projection prowling around. In the chorus, black fur almost completely broke its outline. A few patches of bare gray skin spread across its torso. As it stalked the side of the barn, the moon gave us just enough light to give out these minute details. The scariest part, however, was the pulsing black aura surrounding the beast. It had a fiery radiance to it. It seemed to emit the darkest of hues. I didn't dare move a muscle. I simply stared as the beast continued its way to the barn's entrance. It circled around the right wall and headed towards the door. It disappeared within the darkness and the loud distinct sound of shattering wood filled my ears. The thing broke through the barn doors. There were a few growls and the pig's wails became even more desperate. And then everything seemed to die down. Not a single sound. Even the crickets seemed to have better things to do than chirping around. It was unsettling. Four-year-old me was overwhelmed by its presence. However, the pigs let out one last encore. In a single moment, everything spiraled down into chaos. Not just the pigs, but the chickens and even some of the sheep we kept started going absolutely berserk. The animals started letting out terrifying cries for help. The noises boomed across the field. I could hear some animals banging aggressively on the walls of the barn in a last-ditch attempt to escape the horror that had come for them. That dog didn't even let out a peep. It was like witnessing a ballad orchestrated by the god of death itself. I had no means of seeing what was going on within the barn and frankly speaking I didn't want to. I crouched down against my bedroom wall not making a sound. All the while Brownie lay right beside me. The screeches lasted no longer than two minutes. Dead silence prevailed afterwards. I looked up. The silence was like an alarm to me. I got up and peered out of the window, just in time to see that demonic dog carrying a pig's carcass with its mouth. It walked a few feet and rested the carcass down. The dog then went into high alert and started looking around, probably trying to see if anybody else was around. It didn't occur to me to duck down and surely enough, the dog's gaze rested upon me. It had menacing red eyes. I gazed into its crimson ocular abyss. It stared back at me. And then it started growling. I froze up. The dog took a few steps towards me and let out a howl of pain. Just a moment later, I heard the familiar sound of a gunshot. The dog's hindquarters fell to the ground. Suddenly, another bullet struck its leg, followed by another gunshot. The dog let out an ear-piercing howl. It looked towards the fields that stretched down in front of the barn. I saw a figure walking towards the injured beast. As it drew closer, I could make out a few features. It was my dad. In his left hand was a giant halberd. The dog started growling again. My dad calmly walked towards the dog, axe in hand. The dog was furious. 
In a final outburst of carnage, the dog lunged at my father who was a mere three meters away. A moment later, the beast's body was on the ground, its head severed, fallen a few feet to the right. I couldn't even keep up. I barely saw Dad raising the massive weapon, much less swinging it, and before I knew it, the demon dog was dead. I rushed outside towards my dad. What was that? I asked with a worried expression. My dad held a cold expression, his gaze akin to that of an emotionless killer. A black shock, he responded. It's kind of a phantom dog. He walked towards the barn and I followed closely. He stopped at the broken door. I wished that I had had time to cover my eyes because nothing could prepare me for the slaughter within. The entire barn was covered in blood. A few bits of flesh and bone and internal organs were scattered across the room. In the center of it lay a pig's head. It had a look of sheer terror on its face. Hey Hugo, Dad spoke up. Tears burst out of my eyes as I looked towards him. He put his hand on my head. Remember this wall, boy. Monsters do exist. This story takes place in 2014, back when my dad was still alive. A time where I was getting fairly skilled at my profession. I was seated down thinking about those old times when the light in the cabin changed from red to green. The chopper slowed down a bit as it descended towards the ground. How did I even get here? 24 hours ago, I was at home enjoying my weekend. I was just about to head over to a friend's house when I got an email regarding an emergency assignment that I needed to attend to. Anyways, fast forward an entire day's worth of travel and preparations and I was in Romania flying over to some random ghost town with two hunters, Pearson and Mike. The chopper hovered close to the ground. Pearson was the first to drop onto the ground. I started gathering my equipment. I had brought along quite a bundle, and grabbing my huge sack, I jumped off the chopper and landed on the grass. The three of us gathered around as the chopper retreated. Alright, let's review our tasks once again, Pearson said taking the lead. He pulled out his tablet and displayed a map of the town on its screen. Right now, we have a perimeter set up all around the town's borders. According to the surveillance team, neither of them have left the area. Both of them are somewhere in the town. Now, the town is two clicks south from our position. Both of you will circle around from the west side. I'll find a vantage point to monitor the cameras around the perimeter and give you both a sniper support. I looked at Pearson. Based on his speech, I could tell that he wasn't very enthusiastic about storming the town himself. And to be honest, I could understand why. He continued. Now here's a very important detail. There's a graveyard on the east side of town. Do not let them anywhere near it. He then turned the device in our direction so that we could see the screen. Lastly, our targets. These two are the people behind the massacres occurring in this region. They've killed hundreds. So I guess you can imagine just how much blood they've drunk till now. I stared at the two faces on the screen. Even as photos, their unsettling gazes stared deep into my soul. Vampires, I muttered under my breath. 
this is going to be fun. After around 30 minutes of walking, me and Mike reached the outskirts of the locality while Pearson went off to find high ground. I crouched down behind a damaged section of the wall, probably the remains of some old house. To my right was a patch of small huts, to my left an array of two-story houses. After peeking around the wall, I could see a vast stretch of bricks and concrete. A small path led downwards into a trench, which directly connected the east and west ends of the town. And bridges were built over this path to connect the two halves. It was too dark to see far off into the area, so I pulled out my binoculars. The trench twisted and turned, making an asymmetrical division between the north and south sides of the town. On the other side of town, I saw what looked to be a small church. You spotted the graveyard yet? Mike whispered. No, not yet. I can't get a visual, I said. The view from my position was pretty limited. I called in Pearson. I need the cemetery's position. The cemetery is on the northeast side of town near the edge. It's clear as of now. You see that main footpath connecting the town sides. It forks halfway in. Take the left path and you'll find yourself near the church. 150 meters behind it is the graveyard. Pearson responded. Roger that, I said. I turned to face Mike. Right, now we're on the west side of town. Right across from us is the graveyard. We'll both circle around the edges, clearing houses on the way. No matter what, we gotta draw these two out. Mike nodded. Pearson's voice came through. We've got satellite imaging on the town and the cameras on the perimeter give us a complete visual. I'll call for any threats or signs of movement. If anyone enters the graveyard, I'll take them out. So both of you don't enter it. Any other point of interest that we should check out? Mike asked. Yes, there's a decent sized mansion near the southeast edges. I highly suspect both of them are in there. Keep clearing ground until you've made it to the graveyard then circle back towards the mansion. If they try to scram, either I or the mines at the perimeter, we set up, we'll get them. The rest is up to you, Pearson stated. I looked at Mike. Needless to say, this was going to be one heck of a hunt. We went along with the plan. Michael circled around by the north section while I headed out towards the back alleys that ran parallel to the main pathway. There were buildings crammed together a few minutes in, and I was completely surrounded by darkness. I would have been easy picking if I didn't have my night vision goggles on. The buildings around me creaked ever so slightly as if they were mocking me. My finger pushed on my rifle trigger a bit harder. An unsettling presence filled the dark path. Within the dead silence, I could make out a few whispers. The voices grew in number. It felt like a choir of all the souls of this town that had been laid to waste. I stopped walking. The darkness seemed to threaten me against taking another step, all the while taunting me to move forward. I didn't dare move ahead. I just stayed in place waiting for something to happen, for something to leap out of the dark and tear me to shreds. That's why I almost jumped out of my skin when I heard a voice scream in my ear. I looked around in panic. However, nothing was there. I was completely alone. After I recovered from my initial shock, though, I realized the voice in my ear was still screaming. 
it was Pearson. It took me a second to comprehend what he said and understand the danger that I was in. He said, Get out from those buildings now. Something's coming your way. Get onto the main pass so that I can give you sniper support. My mind was having trouble processing the situation, but my body didn't hesitate. I turned to my left towards an alleyway that led straight towards the trench. As I started to run, I could hear the sound of rustling deep within the darkness. Not stopping for a second, I turned my head towards the path that I previously was heading down. There, clad in black, was the outline of something moving in the dark. It was humanoid in shape and had bright crimson eyes. It bolted straight towards me. I didn't dare look back. I hauled it out of there, heading out towards the pathway. As I was running away, I swear that I felt a hand almost grab my shoulder. If I hesitated even for a second, I probably wouldn't have been writing this. I didn't stop until I reached the pathway. The moment that I emerged from the alley, I felt a bullet fly right past my shoulder. A demonic howl of pain followed. It felt enraged and resentful. I turned around to face my pursuer, however there was nothing. It all happened so fast that I needed a moment to comprehend it. I called in on Pearson. What the heck was that? I asked. Our suspect. It was definitely a vampire. Suddenly I heard the rustling again. I looked back into the dark alleyway, but I could make out the same dark figure in the distance rushing towards me at full speed. I heard Pearson's voice come in. Stay on the track and head straight for the graveyard. I'll keep him off of you. I started sprinting once again. I heard another gunshot from Pearson's sniper, but I couldn't care less. Right now, I had to secure the graveyard. I dashed through the dusty path. Houses zoomed past me as I made my way towards the cemetery. The road forked ahead of me, and I turned left. It was quite a chore carrying my rifle. As I went down the curves of the path, I could see the church come into view. I sprinted straight past it, onto the grass and dirt. I looked ahead and there it was. The cemetery. The gate was wide open. Given the situation, I didn't even bother being discreet with my entrance. I looked around the area. There were around 80 graves. Given the number of bodies, it was important to secure this area, especially since we were dealing with vampires. After taking a few steps in, I saw a man staring at the center of the plot. Mike. His gaze was quite intense, almost grim. I turned to take a look at what he was facing, and I almost dropped my gun. There amidst a sea of graves was a man crouched down facing the ground. He seemed to be drawing something on the ground. Dang it, we're late, Mike muttered. I looked at the graves around me. Each and every one of them had some pentagram drawn on them with blood. I looked at the person a bit closely. The ground around him was colored in a shade of red. What the heck was Pearson up to? I thought he had a clear shot of this area, Mike asked me. He was keeping the other one occupied so that I could get here, I replied. The graveyard, it's a very dangerous place when fighting against vampires. Their unnatural affinity towards death allows them to use a very rare and dangerous type of dark magic. Ghouls. The second vampire was raising ghouls, counting the number of graves around 80 of them. A dark malicious aura spread through the air, 
its very essence seeped into the soil beneath our feet. A gut-wrenching feeling overcame me as the soil around the graves had started to shift. A hand emerged from one of the graves in front of me. It's already begun, Mike said as he loaded his rifle. I switched my rifle's mag from silver bullets to normal rounds. This is going to be a very long night, I thought to myself. The ghouls randomly rose from their graves. They're basically mindless corpse controlled by their summoner. As such, they compensate for their weakness in their huge numbers. A lone ghoul isn't a threat, but a horde certainly is. Me and my colleagues started firing at the undead corpses. The vampire hadn't moved from its position. He still hadn't summoned all of the ghouls yet. In the meantime, we were able to keep the ghouls at bay. Initially, they never seemed like a threat. The problem is, there's no way to put down a ghoul once it's been summoned. They sustain themselves through their summoner's spirit or something like that. No matter how many times we shoot them down, they just keep getting back up. We were getting pushed back further and further. I was running out of bullets and it seemed like Mike was too. I was desperately trying to think up something when I heard a soft thud behind me. A footstep. I spun around instinctively only to be met face to face with a walking corpse. This ghoul had snuck up behind me. I wouldn't have been able to react fast enough and I thought I was going to die. Before I could do anything though, something pierced through the ghoul's cranium. The ghoul fell down onto the ground. I looked at its head and something was lodged in it. An arrow. It had blue fletching on a brown wooden shaft. The arrowhead was tapered aggressively and ornate with a circular symbol embossed in gold. I looked around trying to figure out where it came from. Watch your sex. A voice came through my earpiece. Pearson, I cursed under my breath. I didn't see you anywhere close. Where the heck are you? Another arrow came soaring through the sky, hitting a stray ghoul on its head. You see that giant hill up north, he said. You do realize that's around a kilometer away, right? You gotta be kidding me. Mike retorted as he shot at a few scrambling ghouls. Stop flexing on us with your magecraft. Wait till you see this. Pearson smirked as another arrow landed at the center of an impending horde. The next thing I know, the ghouls got engulfed in a fiery explosion. I hate you magic folk, Mike shouted. With Pearson's support, we were able to clear out a lot of the ghouls. I glanced at the vampire still bent over the pentagram. Nothing's going to change unless we kill him. All of a sudden, the vampire got up. It had finished the summoning. He stopped to admire the chaos that he had created. Our gazes met as he turned to face me. I felt a chill run down my spine as his eyes seemingly stared deep into my soul. Without wasting a single moment, he turned tail and started running away. He's trying to run, I screamed into my mic. I got him, Pearson called. He shot a silver-tipped arrow straight at his heart. However, the arrow stopped a few inches away from his chest. A black mass, kind of like a shadow, floated in front of his body. The arrow fell to the ground. I aimed at the monster and emptied my clip at it. Nothing. A few metallic clicks confirmed that all my bullets fell to the ground, completely deflected. 
Pearson tried putting a few more arrows into him, but to no avail. None of us knew what to do. Mike had run out of ammo and the ghouls had started to get up again. The situation was not to our advantage. But then Mike called out to me. Even in the heat of the moment, I could hear him say, Don't let this go in vain. He started running towards the black mass and he knew what he was doing. I knew what he was doing. But despite it all, I just stood there watching, not being able to utter a single word. He charged head on with great valor. As he got within five feet, however, he stopped. Blood dripped from the hole in his torso as the shadowy tendril pierced his chest. I heard a click. The pin of a grenade. The ground shook as a violent shockwave rippled through the air. A bright flash blinded my eyes and a thunderous blast echoed in my ears. The dust settled. I glanced at the remains of Mike's final stand. The vampire was flat on the ground twitching his body all over. Both of his legs were mangled while his arms were blown clean off. I flipped his body on its back. His face matched those of the records. He was the second target and his name was Jeff. Although his body was blown up at point blank, he could easily regenerate himself if given the time. I pulled out my silver stake. Jeff gave me a menacing stare and I pointed the stake at his chest. Do you realize just how many people you've killed in the past few days? I asked, staring him down. Jeff smirked. How many breeds have you eaten in your life? He replied. I shoved the stake straight into his heart. He let out one last groan before going completely limp. I sat down as his body slowly decayed, leaving a huge lump of black ash in its wake. Mike, or rather what was left of him, laid right beside me. What the heck happened to Mike? Pearson's voice came through. Killed in action was all that I could say. A good minute of silence followed. The second guy's in the mansion, Pearson spoke. How can you be so sure? I asked him. I drove him into it, he replied. Why do you think I ran out of bullets? Also, on a side note, I don't have a lot of arrows left. Well, what are you waiting for? Get your butt down here, I told him. I'm pretty far away. It'll take a while. I don't care, I said. I looked at the pool of Mike's blood spilling from his dislodged torso. I'm moving in now. We're going to see this mission through to the end, no matter what. In any case, listen up, I have a plan. Pearson called. About time, I replied. I approached the mansion gates. The iron hinges creaked as I pushed it open. The inside of the mansion was pitch black. I switched my goggles to thermal vision mode. Interestingly, vampires are even colder than their surroundings. They have no body heat. Consequently, they don't appear in thermal scans. They can be very hard to detect if you don't know what you're looking for. However, if there's a simple trick that most hunters use, instead of looking for red heat patches, they look for the coldest patches of purple or black to locate vampires. I looked around. There were no immediate threats in my vicinity. I started walking down the hallways. This mansion only had a single story with an attic above it. I decided to clear this level before going up. As I walked down the last hallway, I looked up at the ceiling, a patch of dark purple. 
I took out an explosive and attached it to the ceiling. The device beeped. I could see the patch move up a bit. I took around 15 steps before pulling out my detonator and pressing the button. Pieces of wood flew all over the place as the ceiling which connected to the first floor had collapsed. I heard a giant thud as a black figure fell down on the hardwood floor. I had used up all my rifle rounds so I pulled out my Desert Eagle. Three gunshots resonated in the hallways as I shot at the figure. I looked up to see if I had done any damage. To my surprise, a black shadowy mass hovered before the entity. Oh yeah, both of them are siblings. Of course, they have the same type of magic shadow thingies, I thought to myself. I looked at the man. Furious would be an understatement. His eyes screamed murder. I booked it down the hallway and back towards the entrance. There was a staircase that led to the upper floor. I ducked into a random room and hid behind some furniture. This guy's name was Jimmy. He was the older brother of Jeff. Jimmy's footsteps continued down the hallway. He turned right onto another hallway which led to the dining hall. I waited another minute to play it safe before booking it back to the entrance. After locating the staircase, I silently began to climb it. I could hear Jimmy cursing and screaming at me for killing his brother downstairs. While he was occupied, I began setting up explosives all over the place. This was the last phase of Pearson's plan. I scanned around in my thermal goggles. This time, though, I was looking for a patch of red. Suddenly, I heard footsteps running up the stairs. I got into position waiting for Jimmy to fall for the trap. The first explosion occurred moments after he got on the upper level. I could hear his screeches intensify as he got more and more upset. I hid in what appeared to be a study. As the seconds passed, Jimmy's footsteps drew nearer. I peeked into the hallway. Even with all the darkness, I saw the outline of a tall humanoid figure. Two blood-red eyes staring right at me. I instantly closed the door and retreated into the room. Not even a second later, I heard the door smash as Jimmy busted it open with a single kick. I aimed my gun at him and fired. I must have got seven rounds in before that shadow stopped the rest. Jimmy was beyond consolation at this point. He grabbed me by the collar and threw me across the room. Before I could even process what was going on, I felt his hand grab my leg and throw me into a table. My back crashed against the plywood. The table fell sideways and I rested my head on a big broken piece of it. Using my battered up arms, I sat upright looking at the vampire. Tears burst out from the psychotic killer's eyes. I watched as the droplets fell on the floor below and evaporated instantly. He did lose his brother after all. Jimmy wiped away his tears, returning his malevolent gaze back to his face. The shadowy mass stretched out to fill the room. They twirled and formed into tendrils as they slithered across the floor straight towards me. As I sat there, I heard a slight tap from behind the section of wood that I was leaning against. The ends of the tendrils sharpened into spears. Jimmy pointed them my way. Only one of us will die tonight. Jimmy's voice boomed. No kidding, Sherlock, I replied. I tilted my head towards the right. I heard the shattering of wood behind me as an arrow flew over my left shoulder. 
It moved so fast that Jimmy had no time to react. Even the shadow thing got torn through by the sheer force of the arrow. The silver-tipped projectile penetrated deep into the vampire's heart. A flash of bright white light illuminated the room. I heard the vampire's screams coupled with a gust of wind. The shadows were purged by the light. Two hands desperately tried to crawl away from the engulfing light before being vaporized completely. Pearson walked around the broken furniture behind me as a heap of ash settled down on the floor. I told you to distract him. Now get your butt handed to you. He said, extending his arm to me. I looked at the pile of ash and smoke, taking Pearson's hand. You're an idiot, you know that. Ten years ago, I survived an airplane crash. What I saw scarred me for the rest of my life. Written by Boris Basic You won't find anything about it on the news or internet. The case was declared closed soon after the crash, claiming that there were no survivors. I never told anyone about it, not even my late wife. I guess the whole thing traumatized me so much that I just wanted to push it to the back of my mind and never think about it again. But it was always there gnawing at me, reminding me. So now I'm going to tell you all about it. It was early fall and I had just boarded the plane which would take me home from my two-week-long business trip. The plane took off just to fine and since I'm so prone to jet lag, I decided to get some sleep. I'm not sure how much time had gone by but I remember strong turbulence waking me up. I opened my eyes to see luggage falling down and around and passengers screaming in terror. What's going on? I instantly became alert, asking the terrified lady next to me. She outright ignored me, clutching her seat feverishly. Oxygen masks had dropped from above and I put mine on as soon as it did, buckling my seatbelt with trembling hands. I looked outside the window and saw the tops of endless rows of trees dangerously close and getting closer by the second. This is it. It's all over. Those were my last thoughts before impact and everything went dark. I awoke on the floor of the airplane. Luggage, spilled food, and other items were all around me. I looked up towards the pilot's cabin and was met with a view of trees. The plane had apparently broken into pieces, but the fuse lodge seemed as somewhat intact, despite the mess around me. My first thought was, I survived. Looking down on my aching body and trying to assess the damage, I was pretty bruised up and my shoulder had a minor cut. But other than that, nothing serious. It was then that I heard the voices of other passengers around me. To my left, it sounded like a woman was crying, and another woman was consoling her. In front of me, I heard a moaning sound, 
All to my right was a man who seemed to be bruised up like me, but fine. I got up and realized that a handful of us were still alive, and some were already checking the dead bodies for their vital signs. We need to help the injured now, one of these survivors shouted. I joined in to help them with that, checking the pulses of the passengers that weren't messed up so badly that they could potentially be alive. Linda, she's gone. I'm sorry. The consoling woman told the young girl who was sobbing over what we later figured out was her sister's disfigured body. A few minutes later, we saw a passenger who was alive in a seat, but just barely. He had a metal pipe hanging from his gut and his legs were crushed beyond recognition. He begged us to kill him and after some hesitation, Mitch, one of these survivors, took a hatchet to him. The rest of us turned away. We could hardly bear listening to the sound of the hatchet connecting to the man's skull, let alone watch it. What should we do? Linda asked. Basic rules say that we should stay put and rescue will have an easier time finding us. I said. Yeah, he's right, another one of these survivors said. We need to set up an SOS signal and try to contact someone. Amber, are you getting anything? He asked the woman who was consoling Linda earlier. She was on her phone trying to see if she could get a signal. Nothing. She shook her head in desperation. Not a single bar. Well, then we have no choice but to wait. Another survivor responded. We have to set up shelter. It's going to get cold tonight, I said. Wait, we're not going to be here for that long, are we? Mitch asked. Bad tonight and maybe a few more nights, I said. We have to ration our food and get cozy. What about the ones who died? We have to give them a burial. Linda said through tears. We will, sweetie, Amber told her, but right now we have to think about our own survival. We went outside to see where we were, but despite having a small clearing, all around us were tall trees blocking our view. A few broken trees lay around, as a result of the plane knocking them down upon impact. Since there were no major elevations nearby, there was no way of telling how close or far we were from civilization. We carried out the dead bodies and lined them up in front of the plane. We decided not to use our strength for digging, since who knows how long we would have to stay here. So instead, we just covered them with sheets and clothing. In total, there were only six of us left alive. Linda, Amber, Mitch, Will, Norton, and myself. At around dusk, it started to get really cold, so we used the luggage to block the opening in the door as much as we could. Mitch used rocks to form an SOS sign in the small clearing behind the plane, in hopes to get the rescuer's attention faster. When night fell, we still couldn't get rid of the impending cold, so we put on extra clothes and huddled up on makeshift beds made from clothing and blankets of other passengers. 
and we ate a meager meal of a candy bar per person and decided to get some sleep. Most of the group members fell asleep quickly, with the exception of Linda crying herself to sleep. I was the last one to fall asleep. I'm not sure what time it was when I suddenly woke up at the sound of a twig snapping outside of the plane. I thought that maybe somebody had found us, so I shot up and peered out of the window. I couldn't see anything, so I approached the luggage barricade and peered through the hole. I was met with pitch darkness outside our plane. I had never been camping before, so to see the woods in such absolute blackness it terrified me. Thinking the sound may have been from an animal, I was about to return to bed when I heard another snap of a twig close by. I grabbed a flashlight and moved some of the luggage away, enough to make an opening for myself. I went outside and scanned the area with a beam of light. Hello? I called out, hoping against hope that something human would hear me. No one was there. I went around the plane with every twig that I stepped on echoing throughout the woods. It was then that I realized how quiet it actually was. When I went to bed, the forest had been brimming with the sounds of its inhabitants. Now there wasn't a single sound. No birds, insects, nothing. I remembered that when a forest goes quiet, it usually means that there's a predator nearby. My heart started racing and I carefully scanned the area with my flashlight again and proceeded to back away towards the plane. I got to the barricade of luggage and as I was about to climb, I heard another sound from behind me. It sounded like something was slowly being dragged across the ground. I pointed my flashlight towards the source of the sound, to the pile of dead bodies. Slowly, I moved the beam from right to left across the still corpses covered by clothes. My flashlight finally reached the edge of the body line on the left, and my heart started thumping even faster. One of the jackets had been moved aside and the space where a body had once been, between two other bodies, was now gone. The dragging sound resounded again. I moved the flashlight up and saw the body of a woman lying on the floor, and then it limply slid further into darkness by a few inches, with that same dragging sound, leaving only her legs hanging in the light. I pointed the flashlight further upwards, and saw the woman's wide eyes staring blankly towards the sky, with an expressionless face. But that's not what scared me. And clasping the woman's hair just at the edge of the light was a skinny yet muscular black hairy hand. Two glowing eyes reflected back from the flashlight, and as soon as the creature saw me, it produced a very short scream. We're talking like milliseconds here. It ran off with the sound of loud and impossibly quick footsteps, echoing and at the same time fading almost instantly dragging the woman behind itself into the darkness. I dropped the flashlight and ran back to the plane. I blocked the opening with the luggage, panting. I returned to my seat, surprised that nobody was awake by my loud footsteps and breathing. I covered myself, keeping an eye on the luggage barricade. 
All night I thought that I imagined skinny hands poking their way in, but whenever I blinked, they were gone. Sometime before dawn I finally fell asleep. I awoke to the chirping of the birds and the voices outside of the plane. I sighed in relief, the nightmare still freshly imprinted in my mind. I went outside and saw Norton and Will standing near the pile of bodies and having a heated discussion. I approached them to ask what they were talking about and Norton said, One of the dead passengers is missing. It might have been a bear. I looked past them towards the corpses and saw the space where one of the dead bodies should have been. And beyond that, distinctive tracks of something heavy being dragged in the ground stretched and disappeared in the tree line ahead. I knew what I saw the first night outside the plane wreck made no logical sense, so I went along with Will and Norton's theory that it was a bear that had dragged the body away, opting not to tell them that I saw something suspicious. I assumed that I was in shock from the plane crash and saw something that shouldn't have been there. On day two, when everybody woke up, we gathered up in front of the plane and started making plans. We had enough food to last us for three days at most if we rationed it, but we assumed that we might be stuck much longer than that. It was a long flight and the area that we were stuck in was huge, so rescue was expected to be slow. Amber tried getting a signal on her phone again before her battery had died, but no dice. I told her to keep her phone off until we would find a more elevated area. On that note, Mitch decided to gather wood, while Norton prepared traps for rabbits or any other animals that we could find. Will's job was to move the bodies further away from the plane, in order to prevent the bear from coming near us again. My job was to try to find a hill to climb or anything that could potentially lead us to our freedom. Mitch told me not to go too far away under any circumstances, and he gave me a lipstick to mark the trees, not to get lost. I put on a backpack and took a power bar and a bottled water with me, and I started heading in one direction. I wanted to bring a knife, but the only thing we had was the hatchet, which we assumed came with the plane for breaking down doors in emergencies, and the others needed it for chopping wood. And besides, if a bear attacks you, We'll lose you and we'll lose the hatchet, Mitch said. Now remember, Norton said as he escorted me out of our shelter, if you run into a bear, just play dead. He may toss you around, but as long as you don't move, you should be fine. Now, if it's a grizzly, I know, shout at him until he gets offended and runs away, I said, and assume a high power posture. You want him to feel threatened. How do I know if it's a bear or a grizzly? I asked. Grizzlies have a hump on their shoulder, I think. You think? I raised my eyebrows. Look, as long as you go on shouting, the bear will know to avoid you. How do you know that? I watched it on that survival show with Bear Grylls. Oh, and don't run. Bears will see you as prey if you run and then you're screwed. I went my own way while the others attended to their business. 
As I went on, I would occasionally shout phrases like, hey or hello, to scare off any potential bears. I used lipstick to mark the trees that I passed by with an axe, every 10 and 20 steps or so. The terrain was uneven and I almost twisted my ankle a few times so by the time an hour had passed, I realized that I probably hadn't gotten too far from the camp. All the while I ran into slopes here and there, but no major hills or anything, so I reckoned that we would have to climb one of the trees to get a good view of the area. I turned back and started to retrace my steps, since I figured that I would need some time to get back. I followed the trees which I marked for about half an hour, until I reached a tree which made me stop dead in my tracks. The X which I had marked on the tree was visibly smudged. Now it could have been a squirrel or something. I know, but this was different. The smudge went down from the X in three even lines, as if somebody had drawn their fingers across the tree bark. I held my breath as I checked out my surroundings and I suddenly became aware of the stupid, stupid mistake that I had made once more. I didn't pay attention to the sounds and the forest had gone silent during my walk when I wasn't listening. I suddenly felt like I was being watched. I didn't know if I should shout to chase the potential bear away or be quiet to avoid drawing attention because something told me what I was dealing with here was not a regular forest predator. I opted for the second option and silently proceeded back towards the camp, painfully aware of every leaf crunching under my feet. I kept looking over my shoulder every now and again, always afraid that I would be met face to face with something incomprehensible. The further I went though, the quieter that it got around me. I felt like I was walking straight into the predator's arms, and then I heard something which made me stop. As I stepped on a crunching leaf, I heard a crunch a hundred feet behind me. I wasn't sure if it was an echo or my imagination, but I shot around nonetheless and quickly scanned the area. Nothing was there, so then why did the hair on the back of my neck stand straight? and I felt such primordial fear. I slowly scanned the trees again and stopped on one of them. Something was off about this one tree. And then my scream caught up my throat when I realized what I was staring at was a black figure peeking from behind the tree. It wasn't moving and it was staring directly at me, with one hand held around the side of the tree. It stared at me as if I wasn't aware of it and it was stalking me. I stared at it in silence for a while and it stared back, neither of us moving. I almost convinced myself that it was my imagination, like the way you see your pile of clothes on your chair in the middle of the night. But then its hand moved slightly down across the tree. I couldn't tell due to the distance, but one thing was for sure. That was no bear. I turned around and started running, not caring about the rules that Norton told me. Forget the rules. Forget finding any elevation. I just ran as quickly as I could to find safety. 
After what felt like ages, I started hearing the voices of my fellow survivors in the distance and these sounds of the forest came back to life. I soon saw the playing group gathered around a campfire. I ran to them and turned around to see if I was being followed, but nothing was there. You okay, Sam? Amber asked. There's something out there, I said panting, not taking my eyes off the direction that I had just come from. Everyone was confused and when I explained to them what I saw just now and the night before, some of them became visibly worried. We agreed not to leave camp and Mitch suggested to make a barricade around in order to prevent dangerous animals from wandering in. Each survivor was to carry something for defense. However, since everybody was short of weapons save for Mitch, who claimed the hatchet for himself, the others got makeshift spears from wood. No one believed my description of the creature that I saw. Heck, even I wasn't sure what I saw, but they all agreed that it wasn't safe to go alone. After lunch, we gathered up some more wood for the fire and tried to pass the time by talking to each other. Amber was a businesswoman who was on a trip like me. She used to be married, but work came first for her. Linda was having the hardest time of us all, having witnessed her sister's death in the crash. The two of them were on vacation when it all happened. She racked her mind about how her parents would react but Amber comforted her most of the time. Mitch was an athlete who had a knee injury, so he was visiting his physiotherapist in the country. He considered himself lucky to even come out alive, let alone avoid more severe injuries in the crash. Will was a programmer and that's all we managed to get out of him, while Norton was an assistant professor. Like Linda, he was also on vacation. It got dark and cold pretty soon despite only being around 5pm, so we decided that it was time to get back inside the airplane. Will insisted on staying outside and keeping the fire going, since it greatly improved our odds of being found. Although I didn't feel happy about him staying out there alone, I knew that he was right and I sure as heck didn't want to be the one to stay out there. At around 8pm, Mitch Norton and I joined him outside to keep him company. He had started building a makeshift fence by then, and big sturdy branches were already sticking out of the ground in various places around the camp. When I'm done here, this camp will be enough to last us through the entire winter, Will proudly said. Well, let's hope we don't have to stay here for so long, I replied. Norton went to take a leak. You think they'll find us soon? Will asked. It shouldn't be more than ten days, Mitch replied. This didn't seem to lift Will's spirits. Norton was done taking a leak so he zipped up his pants. Well, one thing's for sure, he said as he turned around towards us. At least we're spending some time away from technology. Will poked the burning wood while Mitch stared at the fire. The fire cracked violently for a moment, illuminating Norton's face in the area around him. In that split second, I saw something black and hairy behind him, slowly creeping up on all fours, before it merged with the darkness again. It was the same creature from before, 
It was on all fours, right behind Norton. I opened my mouth and tried to scream, but no sound came out. It all happened so fast. Norton's jovial expression turned into one of surprise as he got yanked backwards, and his sudden screaming mixed with the sound of dragging faded only moments later, as if he somehow managed to run a hundred yards in mere seconds. Everybody else instantly became alert. Norton? Mitch stood up. Norton! Norton's now barely audible screams faded completely and the only sound remaining was the crackling of fire. Norton! Mitch shouted again, only getting his echo as a response. Sam, what happened? It... it just took him. I barely uttered. What took him? Mitch asked. And then a scream came through, which froze my bone to the marrow. It sounded like screeching tires which echoed throughout the woods and all the way to our camp. We gotta get back inside, now, I shouted. Wait, we gotta go help Norton, Mitch said. Mitch, think about it. If we go out there now, we're as good as dead. We gotta get back to the plane right now. All three of us ran back to the plane and barricaded it back with the luggage. The two girls were confused and distressed, asking where Norton was and what that inhuman scream was. But we had no time to explain. Listen, we need to be as quiet as possible. We don't know what's going on, but some dangerous animal is out there, Mitch said. And we sat for what felt like hours, long after the flame had died down. Everybody was slumped down in the plane seats, clutching their spears. I started to get sleepy, when a noise came from outside the plane. The snap of a twig. Shh. Mitch said, lying across these seats with the hatchet held tightly to his chest. A sound of scratching came from my side of the plane and I froze in place. A moment later, it stopped. I heard something that sounded like sniffing, followed by the sound of footsteps upon leaves, which faded away. I gathered the courage to lift my head just enough to peek through the window. At first, I saw nothing. And then through the darkness, I saw movement. A tall, hunched-over figure was standing where the bodies had been moved. It bent down to inspect them before grabbing one with its abnormally long arm and dragging it away into the darkness, just like it did with the woman the night before. We got no sleep until sunrise. On the early morning of day three, the chirping of the birds returned. That's how we knew it was safe to go back outside. Despite that, we were still extremely paranoid when going out, and so we carefully observed the surrounding first. Okay, I think it's gone. Mitch shouted to the rest of us. We followed him outside. Mitch turned to me with heavy bags under his eyes and asked, Sam, what the heck is that thing? I saw it a few times by now but I never managed to get a good look at it. I shook my head. Well, did you see it? Mitch turned to Will. I didn't even see what happened to Norton until I heard the screaming, Will said. We stood in silence for a while. We can't stay here anymore, Linda said. 
While we can't go wandering around the woods with that thing stalking us there, we'll be sitting ducks. Mitch responded. So what then? Amber interjected. I looked around and thought for a moment. I knew what the right thing to do was, but I hated the idea every bit anyway. We have to rescue Norton, I finally said. We can't leave him behind. Whoa now, Mitch raised his hand. I didn't see it very well, but that creature looked pretty dangerous to me. We can't try to go against it. Yeah, not to mention how fast it is. Norton's screams were here one moment and then, Will said. I think we're going to be safe if we bring torches, I said. The creature, whatever it is, stalked me from afar yesterday morning, and it was in our camp the night before, but it never approached while there was a fire going. And when I pointed my flashlight at it, it scurried away with the body of the passenger. It's a long shot, I know, but it's worth a try. Okay, but how the heck do we find Norton? He could be anywhere. For all we know, he could be dead. I pointed to the pile of dead bodies and said, Last night it dragged another body away. It's always dragging them in the same direction. I think that it might have a place where it stays. If we follow the tracks, we might be able to find it. Again, did you see how fast it is? Wool said. It could take us days to find it, if we even find it. Well, while it's alive, none of us are safe here, I said. We've got enough water, but food will run out soon. We have to start thinking of alternatives. Yeah, the creature probably needs water, right? Amber asked. There might be a creek nearby, and if there is, following it will get us out of the woods. We spent some time discussing it, and in the end, we came to the conclusion that we would make some torches, stock up on food, and follow its trail. We packed everything useful and made torches by cutting a few branches and wrapping them in cloth. We had no oil or fuel to make the flames last longer, so we figured we would just need the torches to last us long enough to ward off the beast, should we come face to face with it. The thought of anger in that thing filled me with unspeakable fear, but also defiant satisfaction. One way or another, this would all be over soon. We inspected the place where Norton had been kidnapped, and it quickly became apparent that the tracks where he had been dragged in the ground were either clear of leaves or there was an obvious sign of leaves being flattened in places. If we wait too long and more leaves fall, We'll lose the trail. We have to go now. Will said as he picked up a leaf, inspecting it curiously. The rest of us agreed and we let Will take the lead, since he seemed to have the best eye in figuring where to go whenever we lost the trail. Only a few hundred yards away we saw two tracks merging into one, and it didn't take us long to figure out that one was Norton, and the other was from the body the creature had dragged off last night. It made it all the more easy for us since the trail became a lot clearer. It also fortified Amber's theory that it had a layer, since the creature seemed to always move on the same path. We walked for about 30 minutes before we saw a blue piece of fabric on a nearby log. Will quickly bent down to inspect it. I think this is Norton's, 
he said. You was wearing blue pants. Uh, this isn't good. Why not? Linda asked. I think there's blood on it. He raised the fabric for everybody to see. Linda gasped and Mitch inhaled through his teeth. Now don't worry, it doesn't look like he was injured badly, but we better hurry, Will said. We went on for an hour before running into something completely unexpected off trail. A big piece of metal. We looked past it and saw more tiny pieces scattered around. Look. Mitch pointed at a tiny clearing and then the rest of us saw it too. What was left of the pilot's cockpit was woefully sitting in the clearing, partially facing down with its nose. There might be something that we could use there, I said. We approached the cockpit and immediately saw the body of one of the pilots. He was sitting in the chair in front of the cracked windshield, head slumped backwards. His abdomen was covered in blood, but we weren't sure whether the crash or something else had killed him. Mitch saw an open first aid kit and although some of the contents were used up, we took it just to be on the safe side. I glanced to the floor and saw a small device that looked like an mp3 player of sorts, next to a flare gun. I knelt down and reached out to it, when a freezing hand grabbed my wrist. I looked up at the pilot, who previously had his eyes shut and now stared at me wide-eyed. You have to run, he spoke with a trembling voice. Get out of here before it returns. I pulled back in horror, pulling the pilot off the chair along with me. He stumbled down like a ragdoll and ceased moving altogether. Oh my god. Linda clasped her mouth with her hands. Mitch approached the pilot and checked his pulse. He's dead, he said confused. I picked up the flare gun and device which were on the ground. The gun had a round in it, so I put it in my pocket and pressed the play button on the device. A voice started speaking through it. This is Captain Miles. Our plane crashed less than an hour ago. My co-pilot and I are miraculously alive, but we don't know where the passengers are since the plane broke into pieces. We still don't know what went wrong. We contacted control, but there was no response. We'll stay here and wait for rescue. We don't have much food or water left, so we'll make do with what we have. There was a pause before the voice started speaking again. This is Captain Miles. Ten hours have passed since the crash. We saw somebody moving in the distance a while ago, but whoever it was, they ran away. If we're lucky, it's one of the locals and we aren't far from civilization. Another pause and then... This is Captain Miles. It's been roughly a day since the crash. We keep seeing someone in the distance always hiding behind trees. Whenever we shout for the person and ask for help, they run away. My coworker says that it's a bear since he got a closer look. Just in case we're keeping our flare gun close by and we'll continue having a campfire to stave off any potential predators. A short pause and then the captain's panting was heard. He said in a panic. Holy crap, this is Captain Miles, that is no bear. 
I didn't manage to get a good look at it, but when I heard my co-pilot screaming, I turned around and saw him getting dragged away by this, this hairy thing. I tried to follow them, but it was too fast and it's dark, and I had to go back to the cockpit. I'm staying here until morning, and then I'm getting the heck out of here. Another pause, at this time longer. I thought the recording was over, but then Miles continued. This is Captain Miles. I tried running away, but this thing keeps toying with me. Wherever I go, it's there, just peeking behind the trees, pretending to hide. But I think it wanted me to see it. It knew what it was doing, because by noon, I had taken so many reroutes that I was back at the plane and the creature was gone. I'll have to stay here and defend myself if it attacks. Another pause before Miles' shallow panting can be heard again. He said, It got me. It freaking got me. But I managed to wound it before it could finish me off. Shot two flares and managed to take a few of its fingers with the first one. The second flare only scared it away. It seems to be afraid of unnatural lights and fire. This thing is really smart. It scouts during the day and attacks during the night. There is a growl from the recorder. Linda cradled her arms looking over her shoulder as if she expected the creature to appear right then behind her. The pilot continued. It's close now watching me. I can see it just beyond the fire. It won't come close as long as the fire is going. But I'm almost out of wood. I hope it can last until morning, but if it doesn't, I have one more flare remaining. I may not kill it, but I sure as heck will do a number on it before it takes me. If anyone finds this, don't wait for rescue. Kill the creature. Don't try running away because it will always follow. It knows this forest better than anything living in it. As for me, I'm not going to survive my wounds either way. Captain Miles out. The recording stopped. We listened in silence and horror. Jesus Christ, Mitch said in a trembling voice. While that does it, I said, we have to kill it. Did you even hear what the pilot said? Mitch snapped. He fired a flare at it and it's still alive. Yeah, but we can't leave until it's dead. Don't you get it? It will never let us leave the forest alive, so it's either us or it. I'm not going to fight with that thing at first. All we have is this hatchet and there's no way. Wait. Woe raised his hand and interrupted Mitch. Where's Amber? We shot around and gave Linda who was standing at the back an accusatory look. She was here just a moment ago, she said. Amber, where are you? Will shouted. And then we all saw it and it made our hearts sink to the floor. Blood. A trail of blood went along the clearing and into the tree line. Oh God, we have to go find her, Linda said. Mitch took point and started following the trail, calling Amber's name along the way. It was evident that she had lost a lot of blood and was in the best case scenario badly wounded. The trail of blood started to thin out pretty soon, but since it merged with the tracks we followed prior to that, it wasn't very difficult to stay in the right path. How could you even let this happen, Linda? Mitch shouted in frustration. Why are you blaming me for this? Linda defended herself. 
You were right next to her, Mitch rebutted. Mitch, back off, it wasn't her fault, I said. We continued striding in silence. Hey guys, wait up. Will shouted from the back, barely able to keep up with Mitch who was practically jogging now. No, come on, we have to hurry. Mitch shouted back before stopping dead in his tracks, making me bump into him. What the heck, Mitch? I shouted, and then I realized why he had stopped. In front of us was a cliff and carved into it was a narrow passage into a cave. The passage itself was obscured by branches so it could be easily missed, even walking right next to it. The tracks of blood led inside and disappeared in the darkness of the cave. This must be the lair. Mitch muttered and turned to the rest of us. You guys ready? No one responded. Mitch whipped out his lighter and lit his own torch and then ours and went in without a moment of hesitation. I remember watching him and his flame get consumed by the darkness and admiring him, wondering if he was courageous or just foolish. The rest of us followed and what I expected would be a small cave turned out to be a complex combination of tunnel after tunnel. The passages were barely wide enough for even one of us to go through, so we went in a row, Mitch in front, then Will, then me, and then Linda. Oh Jesus, Mitch stopped again and looked at a particular spot on the ground. What is it? I asked. He simply continued walking and said, Come on, let's move. As I walked past what he was looking at on the ground, my torch illuminated enough for me to realize that I was looking at a human hand. A feminine, blood-curdling scream suddenly came from the cave, somewhere in the distance. Amber! Mitch shouted again and started running. I followed him and Will closely behind, clutching the torch in one hand and the flare gun in the other. The screams continued as if somebody was being flayed alive, but it was impossible to tell which direction they were coming from. Mitch and Will rounded the corner and their flames disappeared out of sight, so I hurried after them, yelling at them to slow down. The ground was uneven and slippery and I could barely see in front of myself. Another scream echoed. I turned around and realized that Linda was gone. Linda, are you there? I asked, but no response came through. There was a low growl coming from the darkness in front of me, reverberating on the walls all around me. I started running back in the direction of Mitch and Will, completely forgetting about the flare gun in my panicked state. I couldn't see where my companion's torch flames were, and when I reached a forking in the passages, I panicked even more. With the inhuman scream following closely behind me, I rushed to the left, now full-on sprinting unsteadily. I kept losing balance due to the uneven ground, but I kept running for dear life, not caring where I was going. I just wanted to be as far away from that creature as possible. And then I felt the ground disappear from beneath my feet and I stumbled forward, falling down somewhere and hitting my head. Everything went dark after that. I woke up with a throbbing head. It was pitch black in front of me as I felt my way around the ground with my hands. I felt pebbles and rocks shifting and sliding. 
I no longer had my torch, however, the flare gun was still in my pocket. The screams that followed me previously were gone now, leaving me only with the sound of my own heavy panting. I didn't dare call out to my fellow survivors under fear of attracting something far worse. I still had my backpack on, so I reached into it and felt around until I found the lighter. I steadied myself on the pebbles that kept sliding from underneath me and flicked it once. Immediately, the flame sparked to life. I gasped in terror at the sight before me. Those weren't pebbles, but instead human bones. Hundreds, no thousands of them on one big pile, covered in dry blood and dirt. I screamed and fell backwards, the light on my lighter disappearing instantly. I scooted back until my back hit the wall, hyperventilating. I flicked the lighter once more as soon as I was calmer and observed my surroundings. Bones were everywhere and I saw no way out, but there had to be one. I stood up and unsteadily walked across the giant tomb, balancing myself on both legs in one hand while holding the lighter with the other. The cave seemed to lead forward, so I followed the only remaining passage, hoping that it wouldn't end with a dead end. There was a crack in the wall ahead, big enough for me to go through, and I heard the sound of water somewhere in the distance. With rekindled hope, I followed the sound, cursing at myself for allowing me to get into this situation. I wondered where Linda, Will, and Mitch were, but I was also too preoccupied with claustrophobia and fear of being eaten alive to worry too much about them. And then I found myself step into a puddle of water. I illuminated the ground and realized that I was standing in a creek, which led to a tiny area contrasting the pitch of darkness all around me. I hurried up splashing my way through and breathing so loudly that my voice echoed throughout the cave. But then I remembered that I should probably be more quiet. The sound of water was getting louder and when I finally reached the semi-illuminated part of the cave, I was in a more open area with a crack on the ceiling, letting in a faint beam of moonlight. I thank God for getting me out of the narrow tunnels but my relief was short-lived when I heard a crunch echo from my left. I turned my head to the source of the sound slowly and saw movement in the distance. As my eyes adjusted, I saw a black figure hunched over, facing away from me. My heart started to race because I realized there was no way that that sort of shape could be one belonging to a human being. It was eating something and I dreaded to think what its meal was. I immediately flicked my lighter off and as I stood there, frozen in place, I looked around and realized that the only way out was in the direction of the creature. At first I thought that there's no way I would try to get past it, but then I remembered the only other way was to go back to the lair filled with bones. I mustered my courage put the flare gun into my hand and slowly began towards the opening where the creature was. 
With each crunch it made, my heart jumped just a little bit. As I got closer, the creature came into view a lot more clearly. Although it was hunched over and squatting, it was still pretty huge, almost as tall as I was. It had mangy black fur all over its body, the shape of which was somewhat humanoid. Another loud crunch followed by a chewing sound. The creature tossed a bone sideways in a bemused way, which fell down with a loud clank and started chewing on something else. I was only a few feet away from it now and I slowly took steps sideways, not daring to look away. And then I saw what or rather who it was eating. Linda's eyes stared back at me blankly as the creature gnawed on what was left of her leg. I covered my mouth with my hands to stop myself from screaming and continued a sidestepping. The creature suddenly stopped chewing and shot its head up, sniffing the air. I stopped moving and held my breath, my heart just about ready to burst out of my chest. The creature continued sniffing more vigorously, now swiveling its head left and right. I could just barely make out a nose which resembled a snout, covered in the same fur as the rest of its body. The creature stood frozen for a long moment, listening. I pointed the flare gun at it with trembling hands, ready to pull the trigger. The creature looked back down and continued eating. I lowered my gun and continued stepping away. I was able to put myself at a safe distance to speed up a little bit and sighed in relief when I turned the corner. I leaned on my knees and steadied my breathing with my heart still pounding in my chest. And then I felt something grab my shoulder and I just about jumped out of my skin. It was Mitch. He was holding his finger up to his mouth in a way to tell me to be quiet. I leaned in and whispered, Where the heck did you guys run off to? And where's Will? I lost him, Mitch said. We were attacked right after we found Amber and... You found her. Mitch shushed me and said, Keep your voice down. Yeah, we found her. What was left of her anyway? She was missing her foot and her arm all the way to the shoulder socket. Poor girl was begging us to end her. You killed her? I asked. I had to. She couldn't move. She was in a lot of pain and there was no way she would survive. Will and I both agreed to do it. Listen, right now we have to find Will and Norton if they're still alive, I suggested. No way, we gotta get out of here, Mitch said. That thing is invincible. Will had managed to chase it away with the torch, but it's way too fast and they always come back. I'm not leaving them behind, I said. Mitch stared at me for a while before saying, Fine, let's look for them. Where is the flare gun you picked up? Right here, I raised my hand. Keep it close. We went through the cave, and luckily Mitch had his flashlight, so it was much more convenient than going with the lighter. The cave was practically a maze, and after what felt like hours, we agreed that finding an exit should be our priority. 
We had just about given up hope when we heard something that sounded like footsteps in the distance. Moreover, it sounded like boots or shoes, which rekindled our hope that it might be Will. I peeked around the corner and saw a person standing in the middle of the cave, pointing his flashlight around. Will, I whispered. He turned around, his eyes wide in fear, until he recognized us and relief had washed over his face. He smiled and we went out to meet him. Oh, thank goodness you're alive, Will said. I've been trying to. Will's sentence was cut off when a big black figure ran right past in front of our noses and took Will along with it. Will screamed as the creature held his neck with its teeth and rapidly jerked him left and right. Mitch ran up to the creature and swung his hatchet hard, embedding it in the creature's back. The creature let go of Will's neck, which was now at an unnatural angle, and screamed out in pain. The entire cave echoed and my ears had started to hurt. Before Mitch could pull the axe out, the creature turned around, grabbing at its back, unable to reach the axe. It then turned its attention to Mitch and with a movement faster than the blink of an eye, swiped its claws across the air. I didn't even realize what happened until I saw Mitch bleeding from his throat and grabbing at his neck. The creature screamed again, revealing a row of sharp teeth. It tackled Mitch and sank its teeth into his neck, biting off a chunk of it and a few of his fingers in the process. All of this happened so fast that I barely had any time to react, plus the whole thing put me in a trance. And then the creature looked up at me with glowing eyes, snarling blood dripping from its chin. I pointed the flare gun at the creature and fired. The entire area was immediately illuminated with a bright red color, and the creature screamed even louder grabbing at its eye which had now lost its glow, flailing its arms furiously. I glanced at the bodies of my fellow passengers. Both of them were now dead. I turned on my heel and I bolted out of there, the screams of that creature following me all the way through the cave. I ran for what felt like hours, tired but never stopping. The thought of meeting my demise like the rest of them filled me with inexplicable fear. After a while, I finally saw moonlight peeking from a crack in the distance, and I hurried up to it. I felt a cold breeze as I got closer, and I squeezed my way through, breathing in fresh air and listening to the soothing sounds of the forest life around me. The scream of the creature echoed from inside the cave once more, this time sounding like a cry of pure anger and although it was distant, I knew that it could change any moment. I stumbled through the woods, always looking over my shoulder and expecting to see the creature either behind or suddenly appearing in front of me. And daylight came soon and I fell to the ground, exhausted, hungry, and thirsty. The adrenaline subsided and I started to feel guilty and ashamed for allowing the other passengers to die like that. I broke down, rocking back and forth and letting my guilt gnaw at me like that for a while.
and then I heard something in the distance. Voices. I couldn't tell what they were saying, but when I looked up, I saw a group of people walking around. I called out to them and they immediately approached me, realizing that I was in distress. I tried explaining to them that there was a dangerous predator nearby, but they didn't seem to understand what I was saying. They spoke to me, but I didn't understand their language. I figured they were locals and cried out again in happiness when I realized that I was safe. And that's how I was brought back to civilization. I told the rescue services that going back to the crash site is dangerous, but they ignored me. They dismissed my stories as exaggeration due to trauma, and they continued their search. Not even two days later, the case was closed, and a statement made that there were no survivors. Norton's body was never found, but then again they never found the cave that I mentioned either. I've been plagued by survivor's guilt, nightmares, and PTSD ever since. I would wake up thinking that I feel the presence in my room, quietly watching me and waiting for the moment when I let my guard down. I never go camping and I've never used planes again either, except once two days ago. I'm in a small town right now close to the crash site. The locals here are friendly, but when I ask them about the creature, they suddenly go silent or find an excuse to leave. Others swear the creature that I'm describing is peaceful and that running into it poses no threat. The third portion denies the creature's existence altogether, calling me crazy. All locals share one opinion though. No one should go to the area of the sightings. I don't know what that thing is and I don't care. I have a gun over here and tomorrow I'm going back to the crash site. One way or another, I'm taking that creature down. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.